1: Hello, I'm talking with Ethelia Ruiz Medrano, and she is in her home in Mexico, and I am in Mississippi, so this is kind of an exciting conversation. Um, <laughs> Ethelia is the author of Mexico's Indigenous Communities, Their Lands and Histories, 1500 to 2010, and it's published by the University Press of Colorado. Hello, Ethelia. We're glad you're here.
0: Oh, well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much, Jenny, for this uh wonderful conversation that I'm having with you.
1: I know. I'm so excited. We haven't talked in a long time, and it's great to to have you live. Um, (laughs) Will you tell me a little bit about your background? Tell me about your family and how you got involved in in the study of what you study.
0: Uh, Well, uh, you know, in Mexico, every... Uh way you look at you find indigenous people, and uh, as Mexicans, we are also indigenous descendants though there's um a sort of a, a commonplace that we are like a mestizo country, but that depends if you 're talking in a cultural way, we are mestizos, but if you are talking in a biological way, I mean most of the Mexican population, we are Indians. Uh, our grandfathers, our grandmothers, aunts, everybody. It's, uh, you know, from one or two or maybe three indigenous communities from all over the country. So for me, it was easy to start working with indigenous people. I really wanted to know more about them. And, uh, ever since I was little, my dad used to take us to uh, small town churches and talk to us about, uh, cultural, um, you know, representations made by the indigenous people and all the, the things they made and how wonderful they were and all the archaeology and everything. So, you know, it was clear for me that I wanted to study history since I was a bachelor. And then since 25 years ago, when I started my Ph.D., God, that was a long time ago, <laughs> I uh, decided to focus on indigenous communities First um because that's the way life was with me, I had the opportunity to do um a PhD in Spain, basically in the University of Sevilla. So I had the opportunity to work for five years in the National Archive of India, which is uh the most important administrative archive. So for my PhD I had a very good idea of how this big bureaucratical machine work that is the the administration of the Spanish kingdom of Castilla all over Latin America. And then um, my professor, he was a specialist in Peru. So I read a lot of things about Peru, and I had the opportunity of having a semester, being a student for a semester with John Mura, who was in Sevilla, and that really changed my way of seeing things and, and everything. I really admire very much his work. And so I started working on, on how the colonial system tried to integrate the indigenous people. Because usually we have two, like, two ways of seeing indigenous society. Either indigenous people after the conquest, you know, they are always reveling themselves and resisting all the time, which I believe it's quite tiring. <laughs> yeah. For them. And I don't think it is like that mm-hmm. at all. Uh, or you have this point of view like they were just, you know, like the sad Indians, uh, poor things. Uh, like uh, small birds all broken their wings and just, you know, things coming over them without them doing anything to stop them. So I start seeing when I work for my thesis that it wasn't either one of these things, that the indigenous people, through their authorities and themselves, uh, did a lot of negotiation with the mm, colonial state. They move around. They move pretty well. They learn pretty well how the system worked. They shape the system towards their interests since they were the vassals of the crown. So they took advantage of this. And then I started seeing that it was necessary to go ahead and see how they work in 17th, 18th century. And then, well, you know, like seven years ago, I thought, well, maybe it's time to move forward and see if they kept negotiating with the national state in the 19th and 20th century after the Mexican Revolution. And so I started like um, my own um i don't know how you can call it, like I start reading about this and looking in the archives and trying to manage one line of argumentation, which was how do indigenous people search for the their history as a political weapon to negotiate with the colonial state and with the national state and Well, seven years ago, I thought, well, I think it's the time to go and look for some indigenous community who really are very much interested in their history, and see if they can work with me, and I can work with them, and you know, just uh, exchange knowledge.s And well, I was lucky enough. I found Santa Maria Cuquila in the high Mexic. It took me a long time to find them because no, or none of my anthropologist friends wanted to take me to the field. <laughs> They are very jealous about their
1: no historians allowed. <laughs> no. Just keep
0: out. <laughs> uh, you know I'm stubborn, so I found mm-hmm. I found a friend of ours, an anthropologist, who really wanted to know how to work on an archive. That it's a local archive in the high mixtec. Oh wow! And she said, "Okay, let's do some exchange." I really, I'm, I'm very Indian in that. Mm-hmm. I good for you. Do- you. Yeah, I I like to exchange to things. barter, yeah. Negotiate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you give me this, I give you that, yeah, okay? There you go. And, and we move forward. Mm-hmm. So I told her, okay, I'll go with you to this local archive which you want to know how to work on, and uh you take me to your indigenous community where you work. So with that uh she took me to the High Mextex, which is around ten hours drive from Mexico City. I've never been there. Mm-hmm. And there was this wonderful archive. It used to have a lot of documentation from the colonial period, but it was, you know, it was destroyed because nobody cared about this documentation anymore. Oh. And it was in the city of Tlaxiaco. Mm-hmm. And, well, Ronald Spores, who is one of the greatest, uh, you know, archaeologists and ethno-historians of the high-mixed he... Managed to have a sort of uh, agreement with the University of Vanderbilt where he was uh, working. And so he saved the archive also with Professor John Monaghan. Oh. Yeah, he, John Monaghan, who is, I think, the best ethnologist Of the high mixed tech, or of, or, of I th- believe that even of Oaxaca. Wow. And he's a professor at the University of Chicago, Illinois. And both of them saved the archive, but the colonial part was lost.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, um, but it had a lot of documentation about 19th century, very local, local history of this remote towns that nobody cared about, that are deeply, deeply. Uh, have a deep history and are incredibly rich in traditions and culture and everything. So I started working with her, thought her had to move in the archive. And then she said, okay, is the time to take you to my, the community where I work, which is, um, it's not Santa Maria Cucina, it's another community. But the problem is that this community had a lot of land conflicts oh. and there was some shooting and everything and it was in the news and well I said to my friend she's a French anthropologist as their I told her well you know I'm not really trained in this so and you really look like a gringo or an American <laughs> so I don't think it's a good idea to go with you you know and she said Oh, nothing will happen. I'll go by myself. And I say, okay, I'll stay in the archive a couple of days and then I'll go back to Mexico. And I was sad because I say, okay, I'm a coward," But, you know, Aurora, my daughter, was only one year old. So I thought, well, I better, you know, live a little bit more. And um there I was in the archive when the director of the archive said, you have a lot of codices uh, that is native manuscript painting in your computer. Uh, I wonder if you have some from this region, from the high Mixtec. And I said, "Sure." This, like, look at this one it was a century, a sixteenth-century map. And he said, "Oh, that's from the town of Santa Maria Cuquila. It's a beautiful town. It's oh very near. Gosh. It's very near from here. Why don't we go?" And they have a, a community museum, which is uh, very interesting thing that many indigenous communities have in Oaxaca. They have community museums. right? And uh, so I say, great, let's go. So I went there. There was this community museum full of, of part of the history. This town has 2,000 years of history. Wow. They have never been congregated, or very little. So they have an enormous archaeological site that nobody works on, and that it's almost the size of Monte Albán. Wow. They have a beautiful 17th century church, and everybody speaks Mixtec and Spanish. And, of course, some of them even speak English because they have migrated and come back from the United States. Wow. So I was there, and then I saw in the museum some 16th century documentation that they kept there. And I was looking at it through the glasses that they have, and, um, you know, like a small— Furniture with where they keep them, mm-hmm. and I was looking at this uh, documentation, and then the the um, the person in charge of the museum, because everybody takes, you know, they are uh, all authorities and all the committees, committee for the the, the small health center, the schools, mm-hmm. everything. It's uh, it's community thing policemen everything and they do it as a service for the community even the high authorities nobody charges they serve for a year or even for three years and they do it on their own you know they have to do it because it's for the good of the community so they are very united and they are very proud of it so there was this peasant who now is my compadre And he said, uh, Don Emiliano Melchor, and he said, can you read this? And I said, yeah, sure. Why? He said, oh, we, well, you know, we wanted to know what it says. (laughs) We think it says something about our lands, and we really like to know what it says. And I said, but nobody has read it to you? And he said, no, 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 nobody. And I say, oh, sure, I can read them for you. And then, you know, in a moment, the museum was locked. I was stuck in it. <laughs> was a lot of people, children and and women and men were surrounding me, and I was, you know, with my computer transcribing the document for the next ten hours. Wow! Yeah, uh, for them because they really wanted it, and I mean, you you just can't say no. Sure. They, they, they know how to convince you, right? So. <laughs> They were happy with this uh we took it to the small town of Tlachico where the ar- archive is, and where I was working and uh we printed out everything because the director of the archive was still waiting for me at at uh eleven o'clock uh you know p m wow <laughs> and we printed we printed the document and then I signed it because I said maybe it has you know some legal um interest for you because it is transcribed by a professional historian so maybe you can use it for something. Mm-hmm. And they were very happy and I thought, well that will be it. But no, the next day they came with the other things <laughs> and they say, Well, we want you we want you to come to our town whenever you are around here and yeah, let's be friends. And oh, I wow. said, Great <laughs> So I start searching for their Documentation, you know, that they had a lot of colonial documentation in their National Archive, also in their agrarian archives.
1: Wow. They
0: had uh, uh, manuscript paintings from the 16th century in their National Archive. And then they had a very rich history. So I started working with them. And then I start learning mixed tech with them, you know, and uh, well, now I do some help them with some projects they try to do because from the museum, eh, all the relationship with uh, no, it's not only about history, but it's also about getting organized for doing this, you know, doing things that can bring some future for themselves. Small things, because I'm just a researcher. I can't do much. But we have started many projects that are in a web page that is called Comunidades Indígenas en Movimiento.
1: We'll put that in the blog, too, so that anybody that's interested can go visit.
0: Yeah, and we have there, thank you, Jenny, and we have there some productive projects. So I work with them at a the level of uh, ethnohistory history and also doing field work. And then I started working with other communities, you know, that have a huge amount of um, of history. Most of the region has more than 2,000 years of history recorded in um, stellas and in archaeological sites and in painted manuscripts. Some of them even kept in the communities. And, well, the local archives are very rich and hardly known. And so, well, that, that's what I've been doing. So the book is more about the uh, general idea and more than 200 cases of indigenous communities in from central Mexico and Oaxaca doing the um, legal recuperation of their history as a political tool. And the last chapter is an ethnological, an ethnology chapter about this community. Trying to recuperate his history because with that they can gain hope for the future. You know,
1: that's it. Oh, <laughs> uh, it's it's fascinating. It's a fascinating read, uh, and and I'm I'm so excited because it, it really shows, first of all, how we need to collaborate. Think of how how hard those arch- anthropologists work to get in those communities, and you were ad- adopted immediately. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The, the thing is that they <laughs> wanted something from me, and I right. wanted to. Me- <laughs> to be in it,
0: you know, to to be friends with them. So. It's
1: about sharing and, and collaborating, exactly. I think that's fascinating. I did have a professor that told us the whole class one time that there are hundreds or maybe thousands of little churches in Mexico with all these documents and all this information, and, and they're there, and you have to do your homework. But there's amazing things to be found. So
0: Oh, yes, and very, very amazing things. It's just that... Uh, what we have to do as researchers and university professors is try to open our heart and our mind exactly. and do more exchange. One of the professors that I admire more because they work at, like this and that I really love his work, it's an example for me, is Professor Frank Solomon, right. who works in, in, in Peru. And also, uh, Professor Thomas Abercrombie from NYU. He works in Bolivia. But both of them, you know, do a lot of exchange and friendship with indigenous communities and have found amazing things. Especially Professor Frank Solomon. I believe he's one of the most important uh, ethno historians uh, in the world. I and mean, he, he worked with the Water TV, right? Is that
1: him? Uh, he.
0: No, yeah, he works in uh, projects in the Andean and in, um in the Peruvian region of Huarochiri. Mm-hmm. He wrote the Right. He did the Huarochiri Mar- manuscript exactly. and then and then he started doing research with uh ethnographical tools and exchange and he has a, a beautiful book about the core keepers. He found you Oh know, yeah, this, that's right. He found this beautiful keepus in a community and if he had been there like uh forty years before uh he would have still found people who knew how to read them Aww. but anyway, there's a lot of ritual and organization and exchange around this court this uh kipus and he did a beautiful book that is has to do with the history of writing and also with the history of recording and also uh, work of history and ethnology. And now he's working in a high place uh, 4,000 meters above the sea that is called Rapaz. They have a kipu house and an archaeological site that has to do with the kipus also. Wow. And uh, he's working with Andin, uh with um, uh, Quechua restorers and with the Quechua womens of this community restoring the kepus also oh man and, no he's you have to see his uh, page it's uh, i can send it to you so that you can put it in the blog because okay. it's beautiful okay we'll do that great right. i'll I'll send it uh you know to your email right away
1: perfect
0: and um he's a professor at the University of Wisconsin and last year he was also i invited him Come here and took him to Cuzco. Oh. He just loved the town because he said that he was very much interested that all the uh, political assemblies were made in in, in Mixtec, mm-hmm. and, and that this uh, kind of uh, uh, of assemblies in in traditional languages, indigenous languages, were well a lot lost in Peru. Mm-hmm. So he really liked. Uh, Uquila, and he gave me very, very good tips about how to work there. <laughs> oh,
1: wonderful. Well, the Water TD is all about water rights, too, and water rights do come up in, in some of the manuscripts that you were looking at. Mm-hmm. Talk about, well, let's let's go through it. Let's talk a little bit more about your book. Um, you do start with pre-Hispanic constructions of, of legal issues and and courts and how how things were negotiated and so you want to you want to start at the beginning and kind of work through the whole idea of uh advocating for your position and and how that worked in in Mesoamerica
0: well yeah the idea is that uh, since i had a lot of information about how the uh, the administrative structure worked towards the indians i knew that um justice system was very important and that it was created uh, after the conquest uh, in uh, around you know the very early like 12 years after the conquest they tried to do some the administration from uh, Castilla the king of Spain and its council tried to work some system to attract the Indians to this um legal arena where they could uh resolve some of their problems and to do so they have to work with them in their own uh costumes you know like um using pictographical material indigenous languages in which the friars were very much advanced so it was kind of like not a mixture mixture but you know uh, Spaniards were used to working with the others and conquering other people. No, they did this with the Muslims. Mm-hmm. They did this with the Jews. They, did this, they, did this with the Canarian right. <laughs> population. And so why not with the indigenous people, you know? So and indigenous uh, communities were used to negotiating because before the conquest, uh, most of them had to negotiate with Mexico Tenochtitlan, mm-hmm. and before that, with uh, small kingdoms, they were always negotiating <laughs> tribute and labor and moving yeah. from here from there. So, you know, of course, it was it was uh, a terrible conquest and in a social and political and cultural way. But the indigenous people had uh, enough strength to try to move forward and negotiate with these people. And so they did. So I start with this history about justice, you know, how the indigenous people had, we know that they have, um, what we can call, um, uh, justice systems that were, that they were not unified. You know, right. you have them from different Regions and it worked differently, but it was very hierarchical (laughs) because indigenous communities had a lot of interest in hierarchy, and uh, it's not uh, that everybody is the same. That is very important the one who has the worth, the one who has the power, the one who has the knowledge. So they're very used to that, and of course. Europeans were also used mm-hmm. to this kind of very uh, hierarchical social and political structure, so in that, as James Lockhart says, you know, there were some coincidences. Right. So I start, you know, working about this, and then moving forward, and then because a complex con- context that I work in the book. I looked at well for the Spanish administration at the end of the 16th century. It was enough of experimentation, mm-hmm. and uh, that the indigenous people really had to go into the normal uh, justice system, you know, occidental way of thinking and things like that. And they wanted to control the friars, who were, you know, some of them very much near the political interests of the indigenous. Uh, let's say kings or mm-hmm. I don't know how could we say rulers. Yeah. And, uh, also from the encomenderos or the, the Spaniard conquerors, the first and the second generation. And so there was no space for the indigenous people to negotiate anymore. So it seems. So I started looking how the system kept working on the 17th and 18th century and found out that the indigenous people open again the discussion about their uh history because for them it was very important to prove that they were original people, but not only original people, but they, they had a rich history of uh, land. Right. And that though in the 16th century, we have a lot of subjects that the indigenous people uh, negotiate about. After the 17th century, the, the most important issue was the land. The land, because the land is where the ancestors are, where the sacred caves are, where the idol, idols are, where the shrines are, where they eat, where the, you know, it's everything. It's them, and it's also the gods. Only the gods give the land. So it was a very important issue for them. And, of course, Spaniards... Local Spaniards were taking the land out of them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And so they started negotiation with uh, saying, here's our history. They start showing um, lots of uh, pictorial manuscripts uh, and uh, also giving written records in many indigenous languages about their history, how they came uh, one thousand years before, let's say, of course, the idea of time is different. Mm-hmm. So I start working on this also. It's the only like not much, but a little, you know, not theoretical because I use a lot of, uh, what the sense of history is not is in non-Occidental cultures. Right. And it seems that if for Occidental people, history has to do with reading only, that mm-hmm. for non-Occidentals, and especially for non-Occidentals in in America's continent, it had to do with the five uh, senses, with looking, smelling, um, also hearing. So it had to do with dancing, music, praying, uh, incensaries, uh, uh, seeing uh, pictorial manuscripts; all of of all of the five senses are integrated. Feasts,
1: festivals, mm-hmm.
0: where they eat, yes, they consume, right? right? Yes, that's, that's right. And so, and and of course, uh, history for them is not. If like I ask you, Professor Ginny Gillespie, please <laughs> talk to me about your grandma and your grandpa, right? <laughs> and you can do it, you know, right away, and not ask me. Well, you can ask me, well, uh, okay, I'll do it. Uh, But for indigenous people, it's it's, it's not like that. You can't just sit down and say, okay, tell me about your ancestors, because they will stand up and say, you know, I I got a lot of things to do. (laughs) See you later. Yeah. So, no, for them, you know, history, their history, their local history has to do with... um, Problems they have in the present. Mm -hmm. Pressures, which are a lot, Mm -hmm. they have in the present. And so they take knowledge from the past. They can mold it. They can change it. It has not a unified narrative. It has many narratives. It depends upon the, the, the problem of the present that takes them by the hand to go to the, that takes them to the past. Right. And... When they do that is because they need that this past can, uh, solve or at least put on the negotiation table their problems in the present mm-hmm. and, uh, and pushes them or takes them, uh, t- towards the future.
1: So we're talking about applied history as, as opposed to abstract in a book history.
0: And that's right. You said it beautifully. Yeah, really? that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're very practical. You know, they're peasant societies, so they're very practical in that they can change it, they can mold it, mm-hmm. they can uh, put it in uh, if uh, in one language into language. They can go to one office to another office to talk to one authority to another authority. Uh, take all documentation and and uh, refunctional. um, you know make it new again and with different subjects they adapt it to the need
1: that's right totally one of the critiques that they always say about ancient cultures is that they they can't i mean the whole idea of linear society versus circular society that that they couldn't see history in the present and that's it's silly that that's a silly way to look at it that's a really badly thought out plan
0: <laughs> yeah uh, well yeah so that is you know what I they're adapting uh, what, yeah Yeah. and that is the history about how uh, more than almost 200 towns do this through mm-hmm. the 16, 17 18, 19, 20 century mm-hmm. and, uh, and right now <laughs> and, and I like to talk uh, about local history instead of memory right Because for me, memory is like what you eat uh, the day before. (laughs) Right. And history has to do with more deep sense. Right. And why does Italian or French or Spaniards have history? And why doesn't indigenous communities have history? What they talk about about their past is more like memory. Right. And no, I think it's history. It's just exactly. that it's local history, you know? It's the way they build history.
1: Well, and they may not use a book to trigger the memory of it. And That's right. That's right. They use but other they, things. Yeah, like quipus
0: in, in mm-hmm. Peru or manuscript paintings in, in Mexico. Or a song. Or a or mountain. A, that's right. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, some... Uh, important uh hunting rituals mm-hmm. or many things. Yeah. You you, ha- you just have to look at it and right, right, see right. how wonderful things are doing about this. More and in a very strong uh, way, you know. I try to build a history more about not uh defeated people. Right. But proud people who are, you know, doing their best. And not all of the communities have survived. right? But the ones, at least in Mexico, that we have are the ones who could organize better and understand what their identity was about and for them uh, relying on their their rich culture. And these are the ones that survive.
1: Exactly. And it may change, but things still continue that are necessary for that culture. So they may forget stuff, but there's other stuff that they add, and it changes depending on their needs.
0: Yeah, that's right. That's right.
1: <laughs> so as you went through the different centuries, were you surprised at the consistency of the effort? I, I continue to be surprised that, you know, they're still yeah. they're still doing oh. it. It's still vibrant. Yeah.
0: yeah, they're moving. And, of course, I especially because, you know, uh, in Mexico, there is the general idea that the colonial period was terrible, which it was. But, you know, uh, I found out that the most terrible part of history, uh, you know, where the Indians were more, um, denied was in the 19th century. Right. By, uh, our national governments, liberal or conservatives. You know, they could fight all the time, one against each other. But they had one point in which they were, you know, um, Um, how do you say this, they were, they, they could agree. And that was that the Indians were the backwardness Mm that, you know, they were uh, something that had to be, um, you know, just eliminated. Mm -hmm. Well, you
1: you see that in the United States, you see that in Argentina, that's a tip that's happened in many 19th century places.
0: Yes. And Chile also. Mm -hmm, Right. Yes, that's, that's right. So it also happened in Mexico. Mm -hmm. And also, I was surprised that even though they have this, you know, moments—very crucial moments—all through those five centuries, they kept moving on and learning how to do this. And, and by to themselves.
1: adapt to the new, whatever new twist the government shows.
0: Yeah, and adapting themselves and everything. And so that is a really uh, an impressive cultural, political achievement of uh, of humanity.
1: <laughs> sure. No, it's fascinating. Yes,
0: and, well, for me, and uh, one thing that I was surprised, you know, and that has to do with the United States, is that before I started reading uh, and going to the 19th century archives that I chose for looking at these problems of uh, indigenous recuperation of history and negotiating with it in political ways towards the national state, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to find... A thousand books about indigenous history in 19th and 20th century, especially in Mexico or in Spanish. Right. And well, I found almost none. Wow. The best books about, about indigenous history of Mexico, at least, were written in English by American specialists.
1: Wow. So Prescott and those guys? No, 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 no,
0: no, 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 no. Uh, Pre- well, Prescott, you know, he, he was more... He copied everybody's stuff. Mm, no, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> That's a gossip. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I don't know. No, no, uh Contemporary. Ah. Yes, yeah. I see, I see. Like, so the first historian who wrote about the... The Indigenous Participation in the Great Independent Movement, who focus on Indigenous people, was written in 2001, published by uh, Stanford University Press by Professor Eric Van Jong. Wow, that is the first book and and the last one. <laughs>
1: wow, that's crazy.
0: It is. And of course, this book is was translated to Spanish because nobody <laughs> worked on this. Wow. And we are still waiting for the great book that can talk to us about the indigenous participation in the revolutionary movement.
1: Well, if, even with what is in the middle of everything.
0: Yeah, even yeah, because what, you know, they they always say in the biographies he was born in Gilatao, which is in the high mountains of the Zapotec region, and then that's it, and goodbye, no yeah. more indigenous identity <laughs> in him. You know, he's more like Abraham Lincoln, or right. uh, you know,
1: you know, something. we have a statue of him in in New Orleans. Oh, really? <laughs> uh-huh. There's a statue of Benito, because he went, he came to New Orleans to, when he escaped. Of course.
0: Oh, yeah. He had a lot of admiration to the United States because, of course, they were going through this kind of, you know, mm-hmm. independent process, too, and trying to consoli- consolidate uh, a national state. So for him, it was very important. This as an example. You but know? that
1: surprises me that in the 19th century, such little attention is paid to that when it was such a rallying cry. Well, you
0: know, they pay attention to Benito Juarez as a political figure Mm -hmm. and a historical figure in a way, but not because he, not at his indigenous background or at his indigenous contemporaries. Right. They just pay attention to the figure, like if it was just Mexican.
1: Right. Like you said, like Abraham Lincoln. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Something like that.
1: A liberal political
0: man, very intelligent and well. You know, they say, and I believe that he was our best president. Mm -hmm. Uh, Funny that he was indigenous, huh?
1: (laughs) Not so funny. (laughs) Not a surprise, right? Yeah. Well, let's go back to your book because that, uh, go ahead, keep going. No, just, just, uh,
0: you know, I just wanted to say that, that it's (laughs) very, very little the interest we have in the Mexican Academy towards indigenous people. And it's getting, more uh, narrow every day, and it's uh, difficult to understand why this is.
1: Well, let's talk about Santa Maria Coquila a little bit more. I want to talk about the idea that they are, of course, citizens of the 21st century, but mm-hmm. but there, there's this big idea that the indigenous communities before the conquest were this sort of utopian space, <laughs> and um, and then they're sort of disembodied after they they just disappear. Like you said, there's some stuff in the early 16th century, but in the academic discourse, it, it doesn't occur anymore except the idea of the indigenous communities, but there's still, Different communities all over Mexico who are thriving, like you said, and or facing many issues too. We we talked before we started recording about the Mixtecos that come to the United States and Mississippi. Our largest population of immigrants coming from Mexico come from the Michteca Alta. Mm-hmm. So, um, but a lot of them, it, it, like Santa Maria Cuquila, are are continuing the same arts and and the same stories and the same. There's not this disappearance. Locally, and so I, I want to go back to what you were saying about the whole idea of local history and, and reconnecting or, or reintroducing the rest of the world to the idea of local history. Mm-hmm. So what's going on in Santa Maria Coquila about that?
0: Well, like in many indigenous communities like Santa Maria Coquila, uh, what I've seen is a very dynamic dynamical way of integrating new things. You know, uh, it's it's very interesting how ideological flexible indigenous people are. Yes. In uh, that they are very oriental, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like the Chinese and the Japanese. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, they can integrate new things, and when the their old things or traditional things, if you want to say it in more you know, academical way, <laughs> okay, are are not useful. You know, when they are not working, you know. They are more like uh, a problem that I think that helps them. Uh, They just uh, leave it and take the new thing that it's useful, but they don't merge them. Mm -hmm. They go like one way and the other, like moving one hand. Like if you move your hand up and down with the other one, you know, Mm -hmm. so they can they just go. On and on and on, ahead, ahead, ahead. And uh, they have the traditional things that are very important, and they are integrating new things. But they are very clear that these new things don't overlap the old things, mm-hmm. you know. They go parallel. Mm-hmm. And when the new things are not working or the ancient things are not working, they change. Right. And keep the fundamental things. So it's very interesting when you see, for example, in the high mixtech, people going to the highest places to use their cell phones <laughs> to talk to, uh, in mixtech, of course, to talk to the <laughs> family in in uh, Missouri or in Washington <laughs> or in Mississippi and arranging the, the future weddings of the families that are living there. Wow. You know, and uh, everything in Mixtec, or when you see the kids, 15, 18 year old kids in, in the Mixtec communities, that they are chatting in, in Mixtec. Mm-hmm. Or when you see them in the traditional dress. I mean,
1: internet chatting. Yeah. Yeah. Internet chatting in Mixtec.
0: That's chatting. right. I'm sorry. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah. yeah, in, in Mixtec <laughs> or in Zapotec mm-hmm. or in Friki. And uh, Mm -hmm. also, when you see them in their traditional dresses and in their traditional ceremonies, and then suddenly somebody is, you know, uh, taking some uh, tape recording of the situation and then using a cell phone to talk to somebody in Mexico City in the neighbor, in the great neighborhood of Nezahualcoyot, where Mm -hmm. two million indigenous people live, you know, and recreating things. And they are very much interested in technology, for example. And they integrate it very well when they can get it, when mm-hmm. they can grab it, and um, use it for their own purposes. And also they are very proud of their traditional languages, their religion. So they are very dynamical in that way. And that is how cuquilas, um cuquileños are doing, you know. They take this, they give this, they exchange this, you know as a concept as a uh political tool as a cultural tool also, and uh yeah, all the time moving forward, you know it's very very much interesting That's and, yes, and of course they are you you can see that this these are very poor regions, but I can tell you, and I'm sure everybody knows. Uh, that Mexico is now in a very violent moment. Right, We are having a lot of violence, but I can tell you that I've been traveling and visiting not only Santa Maria Cuquilla, of course, there are my best friends there, but I've seen a lot of indigenous communities these seven years and talked to them, worked with them, and I can tell you that uh, violence it, it may sound you know like not none through to you well not to you <laughs> but to many people but i can tell you i see no violence there not inside their communities mm-hmm. they stick together the social tissue is in very good good health in traditional indigenous communities. And traditional not because they're backward or right. because they're not modern. But I mean the ones that are together, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. around their authorities, uh, moving towards together, you know, in a very interesting and very historical, deep um, uh, community unity. And uh, you see no violence there. There's no violence there. You can see violence in the mestizos, cities, and towns. And, of course, uh, even when they have problems with mestizos who are into this violent Mm -hmm. movement, they stick together and they close their communities and defend themselves. And as they, you know, then they try to negotiate the state to look at them and send them some help. And sometimes the state just doesn't help them. So they stick together and do it. Like, for example, right now, some indigenous communities in Michoacán and in Chihuahua. And uh, that's how they're moving on. So, yeah, I think the social tissue is is in the indigenous community.
1: And in that way, I believe that they are the future. Right. Well, they have to take, take it themselves because there's no one else there. I mean, that's also part of it. That's interesting. Yeah. One of my friends was in a small town in Hidalgo and they got, um, electricity there, but there wasn't anybody to put up the poles. So they organized a work group and they carried these poles, huge, humongous poles that were in a stack up the mountain so that they could string the electricity so they could have it to their, to their, they just did it themselves. They said, okay, we'll take care of it. Yeah, that's
0: right. Yeah, and, and the high mix, they do the same. You know, they build. And and it's beautiful because when you see them doing this work that, that is called generally take you, mm-hmm. the community work, I've seen them doing this work very late, very tired, uh, especially the man, the woman bringing food, the children playing around. And I've seen them and hear them sing. Yeah. They do the community work. Singing. And it reminds me of what the uh, indigenous chronicles and also um, the Spanish chronicles say about the way that the, that the traditional work was made mm-hmm. in the ancient pre Hispanic Mexico mm-hmm. that they sang, that they uh, dance, that they eat, and everything. And I've seen that, you know, like a month ago in Cuquila doing community work while, while singing, telling jokes, laughing. And then everybody's stopping for lunch with huge, very beautiful and good tortillas mm. and eating and laughing and children running around and everybody, you know, yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, very- oh, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that that's what I
1: want to uh, tell. No, I, I have, Tengo ganas. I want to go there now. I want to come visit Cukiza. Oh, great! So. You're just invited. Wonderful. Good. Great. Um, <laughs> so, tell me where you're going now. What's your new project? Well, right now, uh, I
0: the the book. You know, it's a uh, uh, general history of negotiation, as I said, and the history as a political weapon. But uh, in Central Mexico and in Oaxaca. Uh, right now i only want to focus on the high micstek mm-hmm. and do again this kind of research of long durée with uh, history and ethnography that mm-hmm. focusing on the chiefdoms oh, on wow. what was the the local power through five histories the way this local power negotiate with the colonial state and with the national state. Wow. And what this local power, which survived because we have these lineages mm-hmm. uh, in the Mixtec region that were in, still in power in the 19th century.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so it was uh, very special the way that the Mixtec people saw their their local authorities, uh, the local um, lords. Mm -hmm. It seems that they have more in common to the Incas in this image of power Mm -hmm. than to the Mexicas. I think there's some divinity in them for Mm -hmm. their commoners. Mm -hmm. And so that is very interesting to see how this operates in the uh, since from after the conquest uh until until now, when you don't have in power this royal families that mm-hmm. still the authority you know they have the worth they have the the moral and ethical authority to negotiate and what they think about being in charge of the community and I've been working since uh eight months ago with my uh, mixed tech, high mixed tech, uh, prof, teacher, uh, which is a student, uh, from Santa Maria Cucuilajo is doing her uh, linguistic studies here in Mexico City. Oh, wow. And, uh, I'm only doing this, uh, interviews with the ancient authorities in Mixtec. <gasps> wow. So I have this beautiful discourses about being in, in charge of the community. And when I, I translate them with my teacher, I see this sacred discourses that, uh, we have in the 16th century, um, grammar made by the Dominican friars mm-hmm. like, um, I don't know Father Fray Antonio de los Reyes mm-hmm. you know, who was a vicario uh, of the Pozcolula and who has mm-hmm. a very beautiful arte en la lengua mixteca wow. that published in, in 1593 and he talks about a sacred uh, discourse that was only uh, known by the by the rulers mm-hmm. and not by the commoners, right? And you can see the um, remnants, the remnants, <gasps> thank you, of oh. this in the mixed discourses of the authorities.
1: Wow!
0: When they say in a lot of metaphors, why and how. And what it means to be in charge of the community. And it's beautiful because they, they say repeatedly that they are the hiyas. And hiya, it's a, a, a word that comes from the pre-Hispanic times and that are, is r- r- record by the friars who spoke Mixtec and published this beautiful vocabulary. And it means Lord. Wow. Señor.
1: And they still
0: Ray. use it. Rey, yes. And my uh mixed tech professor, she's only twenty three, no, twenty two, mm-hmm. she says, I don't know how to translate Iya, and I say, Don't translate it. Would it has leave no it? yeah. We'll leave it because illa it's it's very important. Mm-hmm. You know? And we have it. And you know, I, I've seen this because they remember, of course they don't they know they were they had native rulers mm-hmm. and they talked to of them, they especially the old people about them. They said that they could bring water, they, they could move rocks, mm-hmm. that they were powerful and things it, like one, that. One of them blew up one of the mountains, right? Yes, that's <laughs> right. I love that story, <laughs> and uh, and uh, that they also could, um, uh. Do many wonderful, you know, they protected the, the boundaries of the towns mm-hmm. in, in their flying horses. That's what oh, they, they all wow. to say now. And the, the, the very interesting thing about this is that these rulers are um, mixed in the mythology because they were so very important mm-hmm. and, uh, they even remember the names of some of them that I have tracked in the archives that come from the 16th century. Wow. wow. And also, uh, once I was talking to an old uh, peasant uh, uh, friend, uh, well, not friend, because he's a very distinguished old man of the Coquilla, uh town. But, well, as a student of him, <laughs> I was talking to <laughs> And I said, okay, so why these Hiyas had so many powers? And he said, well, because they have them. <laughs> and I said, but but why? And then I think he got tired, you know, because he <laughs> said, this lady doesn't understand anything. And then he looked at me like closing a little bit his eyes and he said, well, you know, I don't know. The only thing I can tell you is that the Hiyas were not like you and me. <laughs> Wow. And so yeah. So this is what I want to study now. This he yes, and then how the the local authorities inherited this power in in some ways, and this respect and could unify the communities, and some of them survived through the 19th century and the 20, and how they were negotiating with the national and with the colonial and national states until our days
1: and what's going on right now is it going well badly oh no
0: it's uh, i have a lot of information you know uh-huh. <laughs> uh so yes i have a lot of uh um a oh, woman but... in Kukila. oh
1: well how, how, they're going? how are they how... negotiating yeah
0: well very good they're doing their best um you know they are working a lot to well
1: this You're is working th- on some new some new cultivars right different kind of beans did I see that
0: yes uh, yes uh, uh, my sister-in-law she's um biologist who works in uh, bi- biotechnology wow. and she has developed a bean resistant to drug because uh, the land is very dry and it it's been you know, Bad lands and with almost no water, I believe even before the conquest. Though they have this terrace system that after the conquest and it was, you know, broken okay. uh, and and forgotten. Uh, but uh, I think these beans can help them, and we are trying to get some funding to, you know, work with this, because my sister-in-law has given them some seeds in and, uh, and, uh, an atelier, uh, workshop about how to flow this bean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she gave some samples, but we, for, I don't know, like two hectares, how do you say that? Hectares? In- yes. But we need more. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to get some, you know, some institution to be interested in, in developing this uh, with the help of my sister-in-law,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: Professor Beatriz uh, de Ruiz. And also, uh, I convinced the National Institute of Anthropology, where I work, where I am a researcher, to help with the um, building, rebuilding the, community museum with ecological and local uh, materials and also an artesania store uh, for the artesanian things they sell and also a restaurant and um, experimental um, field for their medicine plants wow and uh, I have the all the project made by the archi- young architect, uh, Daniel Filoy, who works at the architect uh, faculty of the National University of Mexico, the UNAM. And we have everything ready. And I, you know, it helped me a lot. I have to say that last year I was invited as professor uh, in the University of Harvard. It not only helped me to learn a lot of things and also to be in a wonderful environment for research, but it also helped me because I don't know if Harvard University knows this, but <laughs> you know it's it's uh, it's very much admired. It university. is. They know.
1: I think they know that, <laughs> right?
0: huh. And in Mexico also, so my authorities were very impressed when they gave <laughs> David Rockefeller scholarship and also this uh, invitation to give a seminar at the history department, which I'm very grateful for, uh, at Harvard. And when they knew this and I came back, I have to take the chance of this and Mm -hmm. I show them the project and they say, okay, we're in. (laughs) And so I'm very grateful. (laughs) Good
1: job. That's that is. Great.
0: So right now I'm negotiating that. <laughs> oh, well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. Okay. Thank you, Jenny. Yeah.
1: We've been talking with Atelia Ruiz Medrano, the author of Mexico's Indigenous Communities, Their Lands and Histories from 1500 to 2010. Check out this book. It's fabulous. It's very exciting. And it's it's written as she talks. It's It's fabulous. Enjoy.